we're starting to look at things like four-day work weeks. But because we're so heavily still built around, most professional services industries are, around how many billable hours are you getting into your day and across your week, um, there's a massive gap there between you know the productivity that's required and how we're pricing and estimating the pieces of work. So. You know, if, if the expectation is that someone's working 30 hours of billable hours a week and we've just cut their week down to 32 hours and that we're still paying them the same, is the, is the goal now that they just come in and work frantically and don't interact with anyone and don't have any good work experience or are we needing to shift the focus? And Welcome to Insights as a Service. Uh, this week, we're talking to Nathan Hutchinson, the executive coach or an executive coach. I have no idea how many of you there are at PAX 8, but uh, welcome, welcome, Nathan. Yeah, thanks for having me, Brendan. Looking forward to catching up and talking. There's uh, four of us. Four, four yeah, executive yeah. coaches yeah. at PAX 8. Where are you guys yeah. all based? Um, uh, you're down in Christchurch, uh, right? I'm in Christchurch, uh, two in Melbourne, one in Tasmania. And then we've also got our community manager also based out in um, Melbourne. Okay. All right. Well, let's start with that. Let's actually just give a bit of context. You're going to be talking a lot about uh, what you've helped MSPs with in recent times, um, looking at 2022, what what was discussed and the the main obstacles. But to sort of give you your opinion, some gravitas, let's talk about what Pax8 is and how the Pax8 Academy that you work within uh, fits within that overall picture. Yeah. So Pax8 was founded around 2012 focused on simplifying buying cloud products for our partners and as a part of that we're working with the partners through the multiple stages of growth of operational maturity of their business we're pairing that with our world-class learning education through our lms where academy comes in is how do they leverage what they're using and get them to do it to the best of their effort or effect so we set their business up to scale. We're giving them coaching and accountability throughout, but we're also doing peer groups, instructor lead courses, and our premium coaching alongside that. So the more our partners succeed, the more we succeed because they're buying more uh, you know, cloud products and on selling them, and they're giving better service to their clients. We're helping them through that operational journey about how to be more efficient and how to you know, scale and grow. I've seen that in a lot of businesses recently where it's like, Rather than just, hey, buy this because it's good for whatever reason or so it makes us money, there's a real shift into how do we help our partners uh, succeed because if if we help them succeed in a, in a bigger sense, then as a byproduct, we'll benefit from that. Um, I know, I mean, that this whole podcast is predicated around that, right? Like if we can bring in subject matter <clears throat> experts like you, uh, come in, help MSPs with um, you know the challenges they're facing, then they're going to do better. Uh, if they do better, they're going to be talking to more end users, and hopefully, we can help them with that. So it seems like it's just, just yeah. a real, a real shift in how that sort of um, businesses that are operating in that channel, sorry, that that relationship based selling uh, are going about um, that, that enablement piece. At this point, I think the way that we're operating, it's a real differentiator and a um, you know value add that we do have that heavy focus working with the business um, as opposed to just selling them tin, which was, you know, the typical kind of reseller procurement kind of um, relationship distribution model. Um, we're actually enabling the businesses to succeed and using that to drive us as opposed to it being purely transactional. So, you know, we've got our account managers working in there. We've got our coaches that are guiding the owners and 
you know, leaders within the business on how, how to be more effective, how to do their job, how to, you know, keep their staff uh, engaged, even um, quite a lot of stuff I'm doing in that area. Okay. Well, that's a nice segue. So let's talk about um, going back, uh, looking at uh, the, last, the last 12 months in 2022. What have you found yourself? Or what, are the, what are the problems or obstacles you've been helping MSPs overcome? So uh, a big topic I've been hearing a lot around continues to keep coming up is retaining um, and recruiting the right staff members. And then I think that's part of part of the puzzle is getting the right people on board, but then how do you keep them? Um, so how are we keeping them engaged? What are we measuring? Are we defining what's important for them to follow um, or to, to aspire and build towards? Uh, so I've been working a lot around developing teams and people, um, changing the leadership mindset away from managing resources to managing people as well, specifically in small business, because you've got the opportunity to really do it there. Um, I think it's one of the main drivers of why a lot of people end up working for small um, IT providers rather than working for the big ones, because you know they have that personal relationship with their management or they they felt, feel like they're heard because you know the CEO of their business is not through four different levels of structure to approach and talk through so they can feel more valued. So changing our mindset and how we're referring to those people, I think can be quite a powerful step towards that as well. Um, then working through a lot around getting your services uh, and the delivery of services uh, in the flow and order. So how are you triaging your tickets? How are you dispatching them? How are you getting people to working on the right tickets? reducing the context switching, all the things that make things inconsistent and interrupt people so that we can get a better pro get better processes around which drive better outcomes for clients. And then visibility of where the work is, where the effort, the dollars are going. It's a huge step forward getting the data right so that you can make the right decisions. Um, main thing I came into is, as well as uh, the project management and prioritization of work as well and being purposeful with what leaders and the businesses are committing to delivering. Uh, so we'll, we'll talk a little bit more around that at some point, but having purpose clear and working towards it has been something, again, that I've been working really heavy on. Okay, nice. Let's um, just touch on that that retaining uh, key staff. So that, that big business versus little business dynamic, like you touched on there that you know small businesses is great that you can kind of have, uh, we kind of, you can have more direct input into business outcomes in a smaller business. Um, mm -hmm. and you can have a better relationship with potentially the owner of the business or certainly key management. Um, but there is the reality mm -hmm. that small businesses can ask more of you because there's less shadow resource and potentially can't pay as much as the yeah. big guys. How have you seen that that conflict between the bigger and smaller end of town play out in, in, in real world outcomes? Talking from my experience, I've worked in both you know, the large enterprise size organizations and then in the smaller MSPs. And there is definitely a lot, you know, that, that is different. You do get dependent on more. You may have to work more hours. Um, you become more of a generalist. You're not siloed into, I'm just doing one thing day to day. Uh, I think sometimes it takes a certain personality or a, a certain, you know, want of what you want to get out of your career to jump into that space because it is riskier as well. There's generally less job security. Uh, you know, if they lose a major client, you, you potentially don't have a job anymore, but you're still going to find that in some of the enterprise when you're built around one single account. But what I what I found, what I liked was that if I noticed something uh, needed to be fixed, I could get it fixed or I could contribute to it being fixed. It wasn't, you know, multiple levels of bureaucracy or red tape that you had to report through uh, only to be told that this is how we do it and we're always going to do it. I also think it can be a two-way thing where you are 
you have to manage your boundaries a lot more when you're working in a small business. Um, so if you're getting, you know, those emails on the weekend, is that what you want to be doing? Do you want to be responding to them or shouldn't you be? I think it can be harder to um, establish those boundaries. Specifically, a lot of small businesses frame up that they're like a family, for instance, uh, and then can try and use that to exploit it. And th th there's lots of things that come out of that. But what I found working in big organizations without having that direct relationship or that direct understanding of even the purpose of the business, because it can be quite hard because it gets convoluted through multiple layers. Um, it was really hard for me to have a direction of where I wanted to go and sure there's places for me to move up in the chain um, through different management roles or different technical roles. Uh, but me knowing what was important, what was valuable, having clear objectives around you know, what, what should I be studying? What should I be working to? I found that quite lacking in a lot of those places. And I, I think it's just harder to manage to your values or make your values clear and align it to, you know, your strategy and how people are working operationally day to day. Yeah, I saw something this morning that was saying, um, you know, businesses aren't families. You know, you, you don't uh, mm. you ditch a, a family member for underperformance. You know, it's more like a high-performance sports team. It's, you know, you're, you're working towards a common yeah. goal, a common purpose, and you need to bring your specific mm. set of skills to enable the, the, the outcome of the greater of the larger group, but you know, to that end, you know, in a sports team, you're trained together, right? You're constantly upskilling, you're, you're pushing mm -hmm. your boundaries, and um, so I guess in that framing, what what uh, initiatives have you seen that have worked well to retain staff in those smaller organizations? Uh, for example, you know, we've got a, a cadetship program for our our um, uh, tier one and two knock team that, that come in, so they can get a taste mm -hmm. of different parts of the business and then choose a. Um, a path in, in year two, whether it's voice or DevOps or whatever, and get some real time into that. Uh, what have you seen work well? Mm. So what I've been talking to a, a lot is around uh, starting with your skill matrix and lining it up with what products and services you're offering. And rather than just get, you know, gathering where everyone is at a point in time, if I'm a one and this and a four and this, and then a year's time you might update it, but doesn't really get looked at. Uh, you don't really use it for managing tickets or anything like that. Uh, and then you, basically just update it whenever you onboard someone else. Actually aligning that with what the business priority is um, across that that specific skill or that specific specific discipline. So we want to be a market leader in this. So it's a high priority for us, but we've got everyone with a skill level of three. So we need to be focusing on how we can develop those people and then offsetting that or combining that with how interested are people in it. So if someone's interested in something and they want to get skilled at it and it's a priority, it's golden, you know, you can start building development plans and people being able to develop and see the opportunity for them to grow and be engaged in what they're working with and learning is, you know, a really important step uh, to, to get to that point where you, you are retaining staff. The other thing is around how are we building our teams to be able to support ourselves or support each other? So are we offsetting um, you know, different levels of experience. So someone's an expert in this area, how can they make it so that it's easier for someone who doesn't understand it, but wants to learn it and we can start developing there rather than another thing I often see is people going out and going, oh, we need to hire level threes. We always need more level threes. Every business always says they want it, but the reality is that level three might be doing 20% level three work and then 80% split up between the others. And they're probably not going to be engaged and want to stay, especially if your processes aren't you know, in line as well. So looking at how we can develop and grow those level twos into those level threes and putting plans in place around that. So, you know, over the next six months, 
um, you know, we're going to jump your pay up by 10K and in the next six months, we're going to work you towards these objectives that we're setting and we want you to get there. All of those things are incentives for people to, people to stay and people to, um, you know, enjoy working where they're working and kind of the key things that I've been working through now early in the journey with a lot of the partners that I'm starting to work with. Okay. And yeah, I mean, that clear definition of success and, and key um, well-understood milestones as well to aim towards, I think gives everyone a feeling of, yeah, uh, a sense of being motivated and clear on what they're motivated mm. towards. Um, but to, to sort of get there, you've touched on this um, already, an MSP has to have uh, a purpose and it needs to probably have a really yeah. clear, unique uh, value proposition. It needs to understand what it's doing, who its target clients are, uh, why they should be chosen. Mm. Uh, how many MSPs do you think have really nailed down that why us question? And and, and who are we selling to? Yeah. Uh, it's, a, it's a bit of a mixed bag. I mean, a lot a lot don't because they, they're all set to, you know, telling the same story. We'll give you really fast service and, you know, we'll resolve it within this period of time. And we've got a team of experts and you know, we'll make IT simple for you and we'll talk in IT, uh, we won't talk in IT terms. Most people are all saying those exact same things. Uh, so it's not really a unique value proposition um, if everyone else is saying it. What I typically see is that that purpose hasn't been set from the beginning of what do we want to actually be good at? What are we good at? Or what would we like to be good at? And starting from there is a, you know, a, a good point to start with. Um, I see a lot of times where projects and RFPs, they're, reacting to projects rather than finding them um, or, you know, finding proactive improvements within their existing clients. Um, they don't understand what the motivators are for their clients as well. So what their jobs to be done are, and we'll talk about jobs to be done a little bit later. I want to touch on that. Um, we're focusing on things and money more. So we're not being, we don't have that purpose. We don't set that standard of we want to be, you know, the, the leaders in Azure and Windows desktop. Um, or we say we do, but then we're responding to an Apple and G Suite RFP um, and we're burning a whole bunch of time on it. I find defining what you're about and what you're good at is going to help you to be able to at least market that to, to who your potential client base is. But just because you're working in a specific vertical as well doesn't mean that it's going to translate to every other business in that vertical. Yeah, and I guess that, that feeds on to... Um the whole project piece, right? So understanding what mm. uh, what projects you should be saying yes to, but then even once you've made that decision, how to price them, uh, how to make them mm. repeatable. So so what are, you, what are you saying to MSPs in that space? Projects, holistically, let's talk about those. First of all, um, how do you educate MSPs on, on which projects to, to engage in? Then how do you educate mm. them on how to accurately price them? And then how do you teach them to actually make those repeatable and profitable? Yeah, yeah. So as a starting point, and this ties back into what I've been talking about with the mindset, is prioritizing what you do and having a good decision matrix and some goals of where you want to be with that specific technology. So tying that in with, you know, the skill matrix and stuff, we're trying to create a holistic view of, you know, all the parts of the business that you're operating in, where you are now and where you want to be, and then also tying that into where your people currently are as well, rather than just, a, oh, I reckon we're pretty good at that. Um, what types of projects do you want to be the differentiator on? And not just from a price point, but also the quality and the impact that you're going to be having to the organizations you're working with is another mindset that I don't think we cover off very often. 
Um, so start capturing your impact statements from clients and collecting your feedback through the project and use that to get better and be more efficient and effective. Um, use that to be collateral and link it in with the technology and the types of business you're working with and the outcomes. I create, created recently a, a project uh, prioritization matrix. Uh, well, it's a questionnaire basically, and it works through a whole bunch of things. Uh, so we're going through and going, do you understand what you do well? Um, then suggesting, um, you know, what what type of initial questions you might be asking in that decision making process to determine it. So, have we done it before? And if not, do we know what to do? Um, can it be repeated? And if not, is it viable for us to be doing unrepeatable pieces of work? Having those dis decisions early on, then the the but you know the other essentials like do we understand the tech? Do we understand the business that we're working with? Do we have the capacity and capability to deliver it? And can we support it? Because that's often something that we forget about during the project phase. We're, we're focused purely on, we've got this much money that we can get coming in, but do we need to train up our service desk? Do we need to get our staff, um, you know, some training on it? Um, and what's the cost for that if it isn't a repeatable piece of work? And then from there, does it, you know, looking at all those things and deciding, does it actually make sense for us to do? And if it doesn't, decline it. And I think saying no is a really important part that we, often miss out on as well because it's like well someone else will go and do it then well someone else can go and do it and they'll probably do it better than we did so it's a good outcome for the client um, and it's a good outcome for us because now we're not having to nurse all the technical debt that we've taken on by doing this project poorly so uh, talking about that repeatability piece what we're really talking about there is sort of productization of what was a, a project piece into almost a managed services piece potentially um, mm. how, how do you suggest, um, MSPs uh, determine that repeatability? What makes something repeatable and, and productizable? As a starting point, if you're putting all your projects in the PSA and you're not just getting them in from the quote and it says professional services, one, two, three, four, and 24 hours of professional services, you could start doing some reports on it and see what things are we doing continuously and start having a look at how many hours were spent on them and start baselining them create templates create templates around what your statement of works are but also around how you're scoping it and it could be a case that you're working through uh, you know on-prem um, infrastructure through to now it's moving to our data center and we're going to host this infrastructure for you you most of the steps are going to be the same all the way or most of the way where you know you're building the infrastructure you're configuring the base os all those little steps that you're working through same repeatable then look at what things aren't repeatable from there but look at what ones have commonality so are we configuring them as rds servers so that people can connect them remotely well let's start building out what the rds things are as well and from there you can start making it a lot easier to scope and build out your projects and you can tie in questions with that to into the discovery phase as well so are you having this or do you have this or you know if it's firewall is it replacing an old one do you have fiber in your in your building all those types of questions we can start making it more templated and repeatable purely just by looking at what we did in the past so previous projects did we run over uh, did we lose money on this what did we lose money on collecting your lessons and using those lessons every time something comes through we've got this coming in what are going to be our hurdles or our hiccups? What are the, going to be the decision points or the questions that we need to be asking? How do how do MSPs or how do you suggest that they 
understand existing capacity outside of BAU. So they've got this 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 team of, of professionals. Uh, how do they assess how much wiggle room there is in their day to day currently if they're to take on additional projects? Like how do they and how do they work that into the pricing? You know, if you have to employ more people, there's lag on that. There's upskilling in that. There's mm. onboarding. How, how does all of that factor into the decision? Do I take this on or not? Yeah, it's a really complicated uh, question because there's so many variables around it as well. So typically people working in the service area, they're going to be more reactive. So we can use lagging indicators of how many tickets and the utilization of the team and what they're working on, all those types of things. But you might just have one week where Microsoft decided to update something and now everything's broken because you've built custom web parts on SharePoint, for instance. Uh, So anything can happen that can impact our capability to deliver. And if it's a high priority incident, for instance, that's usually going to take precedence over your projects. But what we can do is look at what their utilization is across the team. And we might be looking at what the professional services utilization versus the managed service utilization is across these people. And we can at least start creating some idea of what a benchmark is around, you know, for 40% of the week, this person works on professional services. Well, now we know we have this many hours approximately that they can do it and we can try and work around it and schedule it in. I think scheduling is a really important part with this as well. Scheduling in the time and then trying to hold as strong as possible to this is the time we've scheduled and talking with your clients around this. This is the time that we're going to go. Um, This is what your responsibilities and expectations are. Something I've been getting people to do is put in what level of access and requirements do they need in advance so that it doesn't come to day one of the project and they go, oh, we need all of our admin accounts set up and blah, blah, blah. And now your project's being pushed across two weeks. Yeah. So using your existing data, but also scheduling things in advance. So not just the case of, well, you're signed off, we'll start tomorrow. It's uh, you know putting in lead times and other things like that. But the more and more you're sharing between your managed service and your professional service as part of the business, the more there is going to be that balancing act that you constantly need to do and shifting around calendars and all, all those types of things. They're still going to happen. And a lot of businesses, uh, they're not at the size where it makes sense to have dedicated project team and a dedicated service team. Um, you know, that's something that you might start hitting when you get to like 30 people or um, if you're starting to set them up as completely different parts of the business because it makes sense to do so. I guess you kind of got two options, right? You can either back yourself to deliver sales outcomes and um, be a capacity-led organization in terms of staffing and resourcing um, and, and then just back yourself to deliver. Or you have mm. to, as you said before, embrace the power of no. Just say, look, uh, we're a data-driven organization. We understand our restraints or constraints and and we are not able to take on this work and we're okay with that. <laughs> we're at peace with it. Yeah, or, or deferring it. So, uh, you know, if you're a prof- heavy professional services uh, reliant business and it's that January to March, April of the year, typically no one wants to do projects during that time and you're all of a sudden losing all this revenue that you had sitting over and your pipeline looked amazing, but nothing's committed. So potentially rather than, you know, at the end of the year when you're in that November um, or even, you know, back to October, rather than saying no, saying let's do it in February next year. So start deferring some of that work as well into the areas where you aren't going to be as busy if you are dependent on that type of work coming in. Cool. Uh, let's talk pricing as well. So um, how how should projects be priced? And I guess, and is there a follow-up question? Is there a, 
a difference, I suppose, in pricing up a project the first time you do it versus using that as an experience to get that repeatability and play for future projects of the same of the same type or, or similar type. Mm, yeah. So I've got with that decision matrix that I was talking through before, part of those discussions and those conversations are around what type of project is it to start with? And so I'll go with this specific scenario that I, I work with a lot was the eight to 24 hour type projects. And what are we doing there? Are they repeatable? And generally, if it's eight to 24 hours, you can probably get it done by your service desk or, you know, a couple of level twos. Um, Cause it's, and you're not generally going to need too much project management. It's going to be more around coordinating timeframes and locking in uh, vendors or third parties and all those types of things that need to happen. But the first time around, run it as an actual project. Do it properly so that the next time someone picks it up, you've got all the things that you need in place or most of the things you need in place and you've got really good lessons that you can learn from and, and use it and do it again. Um, doing it right the first time, even if you do take a loss on it, it's going to save you from taking continual losses the continuing, you know, every other time it comes along. So it's better to sink another 10 or 20 hours into something the first time around. If it is repeatable and you think it's going to be repeatable, then it is to lose 10 hours every time you do it. And now you've done four projects and you bleed 40 hours of effort. Hmm. But that part there, so regardless of what your per hour rate is, um, how well do you see MSPs actually define the outcomes clearly enough that scope creep doesn't eat into those margins? <laughs> yeah. Well, talking about the pricing as well, how many MSPs have upped their rates with pricing in the last you know few years with you know the continual cost of wage how much more right? expensive it is to wage inflation, a cost of living, all the other things that have come up as well. So that's that's a whole topic in itself. Um, but the when it comes to the scope, there's a few things that I I, I like to look at, and one of them is. As a, as a starting point, do we even understand what we're trying to do here? What is the outcome? So rather than us going purely onto the opportunity, we're not focusing on what the need is or what the problem is. And the need and the problem are generally going to be the things that drive us to that outcome. From there, we should be very clear on what's in scope. I prefer to be more clear on what's in scope than what's out of scope. Because again, knowing what you're about, it's easier to say what you're not about. So it may be a case that you know these four parts of the project are very, very specific. So it's it's more practical to focus and be clear on what's in scope and have everyone clear on what that is. So that's between yourself and your clients and anyone else that's involved or coming along for the journey of the project. So many variables that we could go into that could be out of scope. And if you start getting too far into them, you're going to spend more time on that than you are on actually discovering and understanding what, what the outcome is, you know, extreme weather events are out of scope you know you, you could you could take it to so many different levels but if you're focusing on these are the outputs and this is what we're going to achieve it's easy to then go back and say well we didn't say that this was something we were going to achieve this wasn't something we said was going to be in scope and you can you know have relatively open things for your scope so issues caused by third parties are out of scope or um, not providing access is out of scope or having to follow up on certain tasks could be out of scope as well. Okay. Do you find that um, people are pricing on outcomes or hours? Still hours. I think working towards outcomes is really where we need to be going in the market. And I'd be interested to hear what your thoughts are on this as well, because we're starting to look at, we're starting to look at things like four day work weeks, 
But because we're so heavily still built around, most professional services industries are, around how many billable hours are you getting into your day and across your week, um, there's a massive gap there between you know, the productivity that's required and how we're pricing and estimating the pieces of work. So, you know, if, if the expectation is that someone's working 30 hours of billable hours a week and we've just cut their week down to 32 hours and then we're still paying them the same, is the, is the goal now that they just come in and work frantically and don't interact with anyone and don't have any good work experience or are we needing to shift the focus? And I think managed services started building towards that in a good way with you know setting up your monthly costs and you know what it is and we're providing you with the outcome and you just pay it but i feel like from the project side of things it, it hasn't carried over and I, I sometimes think as well the client mindset still isn't there with managed services as well so if it's around rather than the outcome and us providing a good stable environment and providing you with good outcomes that help you achieve what your business needs to do through util utilizing technology and your focus is on how many billable hours did you squeeze out of it? Is it ever going to really be a good relationship? Yeah. Do you have so, <clears throat> My view is that, that, yeah, I do. I, I think when you have a focus on, um, on hours, it can work in a couple of ways. One, it can if you if you have that repeatability that you've been talking about and and really solid processes, it actually if, if it's framed in an hourly rate, it it actually penalizes you for getting efficiencies into your business. Yeah. Um, so absolutely, so, yeah. So and and I think the other part is that it almost uh, discourages efficiencies because you could have the project yeah. finished sooner yeah. for a client, but you're like, well, then we lose five hours of billing, and why would we do that? And I also think there's exactly a why not do it slower. Yeah, yeah, and, and no one wants that. It's yeah. it's um it's a very old school way of going about things. But I think mm. also there's a I think it's in IT generally that we are so aware of the inputs and the technology, and we try and align people who work outside of our industry to our way of thinking and communicate that way. And I think mm. people just care about outcomes. They care about how are you making our business yeah. better. You know, what are you doing to make our business more efficient, more profitable, leaner, whatever. And and mm. that comes back to outcomes, not how many hours you're in their office. So, yeah, I think um, uh, for for me, yeah, it's 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 best to move away from it. Yeah, yeah, and I, I like that idea too. Um, and that's what I'm talking to a lot of places about is you know focusing on the outcome and pricing it on value rather than pricing it on hours. But the hours can be good for you know generating and building your work plan, so you know what to totally. do. So when you're doing that scoping, it translates nicer to the planning part of your project and building out your phases. But like you said, we shouldn't be penalizing ourselves if we've done something smarter and automated it. We can probably deliver to a higher level of quality now as well. And we're, we're we're essentially penalizing ourselves for not just being more efficient, but providing better quality of what we're servicing or providing better quality of the services we're doing as well. So it's a bit of a backwards way of going about it um, in a lot of ways still. Yeah. And it, it's something I want to work more away from and would like to see more places working away from. But I do think there's still a big mindset around it um, that needs to be overcome and um, people need to be educated through it, not just from our perspectives as providers, but also from the perspective of clients and consumers. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. So, so you talked before about jobs to be done. Uh, talk me through that as a concept. Yeah, so uh, it ties in perfectly with jobs to be done, actually. Um, so I was thinking around it 
the other day when, you know, you go and talk to a client and you're talking about all your security offerings and, you know, dark web scanning and this is what a phishing simulation, or this is what phishing is and this is, you know, all, all the different components of um, cyber awareness and stuff. Most of them don't want to know that detail. They don't care what a worm is. They just want to know that their client data is going to be protected and safe and, uh, you know, they might have regulatory requirements that mean that they can't operate as a business if they don't have it or they're not going to get their insurance and all those types of things. So changing that mindset from here's all these cool tools and here's what they do and here's a photo of a guy with a balaclava and a hoodie tapping away code in a dark room that you typically see in a lot of those presentations, actually understanding what what are the implications and how important is your client's data and confidentiality um, and the information around your business to you and what's it going to do. So if I was going to use it in a non-IT way as well, um, jobs to be done. I was thinking about this just before. If I was getting a house built, I'm going to be focused more around, is it you know, uh, structurally secure? Does it meet all my requirements? I want four bedrooms for my kids and uh, an office and you know all those types of things. Um, I want it to be functional. I want it to look nice. Um, I'm not focused on the digger that's going to site and you know what hydraulics it has in it and all those types of details. I don't really even care what the process is. All I want to know is that I have a solid foundation at the end that I can build my house on and live in. Um, and I think we get so caught up in what are the hydraulics, how much RAM, CPU does it have, all those types of things that we're focusing less on what the business outcome is and just having a house that I can live in that I like. Yeah, totally. Not, not, yeah, it's, it's again, what do I need? What, what's this technology going to enable my business to do? Yeah, what, what are we going to be doing mm. better? What are the, what are the, the tangible, efficiencies gained that I'm going to see or, or jobs that we can now complete. Um, agree. Yeah. Um, so I know uh, late last year you um, were running a service management course uh, to MSPs. Um, outside of what we've already discussed, what were some of the, the key talking points in that course? So it was the first time we've ever done it uh, in APEC run by APEC people. So we had 19 people signed up, which was a really great starting point. Nice. What we covered off was, you know, typical operational mistakes that businesses are encountering. So things like only doing uh, account management when your client's angry yeah. um, and getting it out of that type of mindset. Uh, I talked through a lot of leadership uh, fundamentals and working through mindset, I put in some stuff around change and, you know, how people react and respond to change and why people might not like change or react to it differently, you know, um, and it again ties into things like purpose and giving them ideas around how to frame it with their team and how to frame it with their managers and owners was uh, a really key takeaway that a lot of people got from it. Walk, work through all the financial stuff as well, how to set up your professional services and your um, technical services, managed services as different uh, business units and why you do that, all those types of things. A few tactic, uh, few practical takeaways from that. But again, focusing on that mindset. Last off, we covered around KPIs and what KPIs we should be doing. And KPIs are something that I'm really interested and in, quite passionate about because what good behaviors are we driving and what bad behaviors as a result. So typical if we go back into, you know, what we we're talking about before, billable hours and focusing on the time done. If you're working in a managed services business and you're set up, setting up your system to say that working on things that are covered under contract is non-billable, but you're setting billable targets a, 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 across your team, there's bad behaviors that's, that's going to drive as an, in, as, as an example, because totally. while they've already paid for it, we want to be getting extra um, revenue. But what it means is now they're not 
prioritizing any of your managed service clients. So, hey, you're paying for us to manage your services, but we're not going to do it because we're not making any extra money over it. Uh, so all those uh, maintenance tasks and, you know, responding to break fix requirements or, um, you know, RMM alerts and backups and all those types of stuff, they get pushed to the wayside because now my motivator is how many hours a day or what percentage am I doing? And, you know, a lot of the time as well, percentage becomes quite arbitrary if you've got people working over 40 hours a week as well. It's a really tricky space, those sort of unintended consequences from well-intended KPIs, right? Yeah. It, it, yeah, it's, yeah. It's very tricky. If you, um, yeah. if you incentivize or, or state, as you say, um, billable hours, well, uh, are they really required? Are they in the customer's best interest? If you incentivize or, or set KPIs as a um, you know, NPS score from clients, well, okay, but to mm. get that NPS score of you know, 100 or something outlandishly high, are you in fact mm. acting in a very unprofitable, uh, unsustainable way for the business yeah. where you're giving away your hours? Um, so yeah, it's, yeah, it takes a lot of thought. It takes a lot of thought to get it right. Mm. Mm. And so a lot of these people were managers that ended up in their role for one reason or another. Usually they're a senior tech, takes on more and more um, responsibility and you know, you're a great tech, you're starting to mentor the team, we want you to start moving into this space now. So a big part of it was just getting them to take off their old hats and you know, start working on what they can do that's better for the team rather than them trying to be the active participant and still jumping into the tech problems and other things like that. How can I build and develop my team better? Um, quickly, just going back to KPIs as well, I've seen that similar to what you see with NPS. Um, and it was a couple, posted a couple of questions and during the course as well. And one was, um, well, I'll go through the scenario first. The scenario that I had once was I was working in a place and they were, um, you know, mainly evaluated from their CSAT. So customer satisfaction on ticket interaction. So every time they close the ticket, hey, give me your feedback and we'll, um, you know, give me a, 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 a red face or a green face, you know, the typical kind of yeah. uh, CSAT thing you get. Um, I went in there and they had 500 tickets on their backlog. And when I started looking at the tickets, it was because, oh, well, there's 500 tickets because most of these were aged by the time people stopped working on them. And people stopped working on them because they're aged because that drove bad CSAT because, hey, are you happy with me resetting, um, you know, your, me, me taking three days to reset your AD password? Probably not because I haven't been able to work for three days. Yeah. So I'm just not going to touch it. <laughs> um, and then, you know, they'd wait they'd wait for that client to log another ticket and then someone would deal with it straight away and it'd uh, close off and they might give okay satisfaction because on that service interaction, they were good. But what it meant was that there was tickets one, two, three years aged in some cases that just needed to be sent with an email of, hey, you do you still need help? Yeah. Uh, and that's, you know, oh. if you're using your client focus and your client um, satisfaction and um, experience as drivers, you need to think around what bad behaviors that may drive as well. Absolutely. That's a really good example. Um, and yeah, I've definitely yeah. seen it in a number of other ways as well. And I don't think there's any sort of like universal applicable rule that says you will get this right if you do X, Y, Z, but it's really about, yeah. Yeah, it's yeah. Really about mapping it out, thinking, being prepared to iterate, make sure that you're again being, um, uh, communicating really well throughout all layers of your organization to understand, you know, where things yeah. are going right what was the driver behind mm. that action but yeah yeah what's what's the value you're trying to get out of it as well and focusing on that as a starting point and then you know if there are benefits and there's things that aren't 
um, beneficial? What can we do to measure the things that aren't beneficial or stop them happening or promote good behaviours as well? Because you don't want people to be gaming the system or um, if you've ever heard of the watermelon effect where everything looks green on the outside, it could be like your dashboards and you cut it open and actually it's red and everything's, uh, you fire. know, everything's burning inside. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We always go to fire, don't we? We do. It's just <laughs> straight, straight there. Yeah, yeah. yeah. No, no in between. It's either good or it's absolutely on fire. Um, are you guys uh, running yeah. the course again uh, first half of 2023? Have you got plans locked in to do that again? Yeah, we'll definitely be looking at doing it, I think, at this point, um, quarterly or just what the demand is, really. There's a lot of different other courses that are going to be launched. So I'll be doing one on project management uh, sometime early in this year. And uh, a finance one's also getting um, launched early in this year. I touched on the financials and service management, but we've got someone in our coaching team who's a lot better and a lot more interested in that stuff than me. So okay. uh, there's a whole bunch of courses coming out. Um, applying sys controls as well from a cybersecurity point of view is a, a big one that's been getting a lot of um, great reception as well. Okay. And I guess just to um, wrap things up, if people are looking to get involved with the executive coaching um, offered by Pax8, what's the best way for them to see what's on offer, to get in touch, have a chat? I think as a starting point, just go and visit the website, have a look, see if it's what you're after or what you want to get. We've also uh, recently launched peer groups uh, where we get people that are in similar roles, similar business sizes to talk and we have a facilitator and we set objectives and accountability uh that that can be a lot a lot easier than sometimes the the coaching part where it's a complete overhaul of you know how you're working and um you know a complete journey sometimes it's good just for people to have people to talk to that aren't direct competitors that they can reach out and talk to so um go to the website it's free to uh join up as a partner as well uh you'll get in touch. Uh, one of our um, account managers will get in touch and talk them through the process and find out what they're wanting to get out of it. Okay. And uh, I know uh, from uh, hassling you myself on LinkedIn that you're also uh, on there. So if they want to reach out directly, Nathan Hutchinson, uh, executive coach at Pax8 on LinkedIn, look them up. 